Wow, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Okay, come on in and have your seats. And it, welcome here to the chapel at Warren Valley. My name is James Long. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see a number of new people uh, coming to the chapel as well, so welcome. And uh, if you haven't done so already, outside uh, to the right of the sanctuary, there is a welcome center. We would love to know of your attendance here, and uh, we have a small gift for you if you want to uh, grab a hold of that as well. I've been thinking uh, this week about this word, impossible. And there's a verse in Mark 9:23. It says, "If you can believe, all things are possible for him who believes." And thinking of a God who is the God of the impossible, you know, so many struggles that we have in this world. So many times we look and see all the big things that are happening, and the problem seems so big and so overwhelming. But the God that we serve is greater. So just keep that in mind. I've been studying the book of Hebrews and seeing that Christ is greater. I want you to keep that in mind as you move forward, because he is the God of the impossible. I want to have a couple of announcements, share a couple of announcements with you this morning, and um, let's start with this. Uh, we have the women's uh, retreat. I believe it's next weekend. Is that correct? Um, so the women's retreat is next weekend. We'll be praying for the ladies that are getting a chance to go down to Ocean Grove. Love Ocean Grove down there. Um, some prayer requests I have for you. Oh, wow. Is that Terry? Terry Franz. Is Stephanie's hang, hanging out there? By, Stephanie, hey, good morning. Oh, my goodness. And look at the little one. So it's so good to have them back. Oh, wow. Yeah, so Terry Franz and Stephanie. Good morning. Uh, so Terry was our administrative assistant here for a number of years and uh, before uh, Dave Mercer took over, and it's good to have you back. I've just got a couple of prayer requests for you. Um, so many people are behind the scenes that you do not see in a, on a normal Sunday morning, but they do a number of things that uh, allow us to put this um, opportunity in front of you. And one of them hides in the back room over there, and he's on video normally, getting the video out there for you online. And his name is Mark Flummerfeld. His father uh, had emergency surgery this week, so we want to be praying for him. Um, so important um, for us to be able to do that. I want to pray also for Holly Stinson and her family. Uh, it's a joyous uh, time as they are celebrating a wedding this weekend, uh, but it's also a challenging time because her mother fell and has a brain bleed right now, so we want to pray for the Stinson family. Um, and also, I want you to think about my son and uh, Christopher Whitehead. Uh, the two of them are going to Camp Calvary this week, and they're going to be serving as counselors and training. So if you could think about praying for them this week, I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, one last thing, we want to pray for Tony and his family. Um, they lost his grandmother probably about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Uh, your mother, I'm sorry, your mother, I said. Uh, about four weeks ago, was it? Uh, yeah, and so they also now buried her just this past weekend. So we want to pray for his family as they've been going through uh, grief time. We have a number of people that are going through grief as well. So let's pray as we begin. Father, as I've been going through um, all these prayer requests, there's so many of them. Um, more than I could know and more than many of us could know, but you know them all. And Father, I, I thank you that you're a God of the impossible. I thank you for the fact that you are God who's with us in the midst of the most difficult and challenging times. 
I want to remind ourselves, and I want us to remind ourselves of the fact that the problems seem big, but you're the God who's greater. So, Lord, I pray um, for uh, these families, especially these families that have lost family members recently, um, sisters and mothers and and those that have lost. Father, as they go through the grief, we, we are there to try to support them, but they're going through the grief every single day. And so, Lord, I pray that you would comfort them today. Pray for Diana Kelly as she is continuing to battle cancer. Father, help her to battle well. Help her to know that you're using her in mighty ways in her group, Father, and that you're working in her and through her, Father. Fill her with your spirit. Lord, I pray for Holly Stinson as as they're celebrating Michaela's marriage this weekend, but then they're also dealing with mom and her fall. I pray that you would be touching them right now. Thank you for uh, Terry and Stephanie being back, Father. Thank you for his service to our congregation, and I pray for them and their family that you would continue to bless them. And Lord, I thank you for Isaiah and Chris, and thank you for the young people that get an opportunity to want to serve you, Father, and I pray that you would bless them this week. Pray for our service today. I pray that you would remind us that you're the God of grace and comfort and healing. Do your work in our lives and through our lives. Help us bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. everybody. You sing with us about our only King forever, who is Jesus. Trust the name. 
Yes, Lord, we lift a praise up to you. Lord, a shout of praise to you, God, this morning. We give you glory and honor. We say that you are our only king forever. There is no one above you. There's no one beside you. Lord, you reign, and we know that, God, this morning. Our church knows that. God, in the midst of our circumstances, the prayer requests we we brought to you this morning, God, we know that you are reigning over them now. We know that you are in control of them. And though the outcomes may not be what we want, and though the grief may be too strong, you are there with us, Lord, and you reign victoriously forever. We know that there is an eternal victory coming. We know that Jesus will return and make everything right. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who know you and who have passed away, Lord, we know we will see them again. It's temporary. The pain is temporary. But then life is eternal with you. Where we need to be, where we want to be is with you, Lord. We look forward to that. But we thank you that you've given us life here on earth to be your hands and feet, to be those that speak your truth, to be used by you. It's an incredible privilege. And we thank you that we've heard a lot about that in the Bible recently and learning about Daniel, Lord, and learning about the saints of old, God. So, God, as we hear more of that today, may you be glorified. May we be inspired, Lord, by you to be used by you and to be willing to be used by you, to pray to be used by you as we go into our week, God. Thank you for this time of worship. We ask, God, now that you help us to continue to worship as we hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. You may be seated, and as you're seated, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 6. So Daniel chapter 6, and we'll be getting reading there in just a few minutes. Uh, Young people can be dismissed to junior church if I forgot to say that, which I believe I did. Did did you all get baby birth announcements recently? I wasn't here last week, and the week before I was preaching in Princeton, so... Did we do that or not? Does any know, anybody know any babies were born? Okay, so uh, Sandy Wagner, you want to stand up and quick give? I know you can do it, so. We have Lucille Suzanne. All right, so that's born to their daughter, Abigail. Uh, our, my wife and my daughter this young lady up here, and our daughter uh, gave birth to a little baby named Brooke uh, two weeks ago. So uh, there's that, and there's a third one, and I'm... Thompson's, yes, the Thompson's have a grandson named Judah born to Stephanie and her husband, Clayton. (laughs) I don't know if you guys, I got like COVID fog, like I'm looking at people I know, like I looked at my wife yesterday, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's like, it's like... What is going on with my brain? And then I remember I turned 60 last year, and it all makes sense. (laughs) Almost comfortable, honestly. All right, so in a couple weeks, the Olympics begin. I am a fan. I love watching the Olympics. Uh, We will watch and know athletes in moments of their lives. We will see them at the peak of their game, at the pinnacle of their performance, And we will applaud and remember them for that. But the truth is that athletes are not made in moments. My wife and I are uh, fans of Simone Biles. So if one of us sees a video clip of her, 
We think the other one needs to see it and share in the excitement because that kind of thing should not be observed alone. Okay? She is a, a, a gymnast of exceptional accomplishment, likely to break records in terms of awards that are won. Her routine currently in practice is six days a week, two hours split, seven hours total a day. So 42 hours a week doing all the things that we watch her do so that when we finally see her do it in a moment, we think that that moment makes her. And that is not the truth. Uh, gymnasts, swimmers, people that go to the elite level, uh, they have, for gymnasts, they rate them from level one to level 10 in terms of how much time they have to put in. The minimum is obviously an hour a week, but by the time you get to the end, it pushes 42 to 45 hours a week in preparation for a routine that will literally last under a minute in most cases. And we stand back and we marvel and we admire, but the truth is that most of us fail to ever imitate the things that we would aspire to, so we never get there. The story that we look at today is the account of an individual who is likely in his 60s or early 70s. His name is Daniel. We've been studying his life. He has been surviving kings and kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son Belshazzar, and now Darius the Mede. He survived two kingdoms and three kings, and one other king is yet to come that he will serve under. We admire Daniel's life, but the truth is that many of us will never achieve the kind of Success and notoriety that he experienced because we fail to put in the time on a daily basis before God, trusting in the Spirit to become the people that God wants us to be. And so we often live weak and anemic lives that are not in any way notable, but could be. But could be. I was talking to two men before the service today who were sharing with me circumstances in their life currently where they achieved a bit of success because they began to live out what God is teaching them. And my, goal, my desire was to encourage them to say, yeah, I'll, when you watch people who have a notable life before God, it is, what you're seeing is the events at the end of a lot of hard work, a lot of faithful discipline. And, and I encourage them that, yeah, to step out and do the little things. Those little things, when combined together, those routines, when combined together, result in a rather large impact that is unexpected by the person making the daily choices. The same is true in this text. Today's text is about a man of deep character and courage who faces a moment of large consequence in Daniel 6. Daniel in the lion's den, probably one of the most notable stories in the Bible apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came to Babylon as a teenager. 60 plus years have passed. He has served and outlasted two kings. He is older and is now an outstanding man of integrity and proven character. The Medes have conquered Babylon. That dynasty is history. Darius the Mede now sits on the throne at 62 years old. He is a wise manager. The text begins in verse 1. It says, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. And that tells you why this account is now present. The satraps, these are basically uh, regional leaders. They were made accountable to them, that is to the administrators, Daniel and the other two, so that the king might not suffer loss. 
Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Okay, so that kind of gives us this original setting. Darius is kind of laying uh, or claiming control of the kingdom that he has now conquered. He's setting up 120 leaders and three administrators. The text tells you why. His aim is to limit his losses. All right, when you're managing something that large, you need to begin to trust other people with responsibility. So he's a, a wise king in that he is delegating. He also sets up over those 123. So the group of 120 breaks into groups of 40. And Daniel is one of the three administrators over groups of 40. Because of his observation of Daniel's life, Darius realizes that he could save himself a lot of pain if he simply made Daniel the prime minister of the Median Empire. And so that's what he he plans to do. So that's the setting up of the story. That desire on the part of Darius raises tension in the country of the Medes. Notice what it says in verse 4. At this time... The ministers and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Literally, unless it has something to do with his personal liturgy and how he relates to God. They know that in that realm, Daniel is locked down. That his commitments are firm and immovable. And so this is the portion of the text where attention arises. The administrators are envious of Daniel's future promotion so their desire is, let's, let's do everything we can to dig up dirt on this man. And what do they find? Verse 4, there is no corruption. That is, he's not viable. He is not impacted by the work of local lobbyists. He is immovable. He cannot be bought. And secondly, there is no negligence. There is no shortcoming, no laziness, no ineptitude. In Daniel, he is, he is seasoned. Probably in his 70s, he has experience, skill, and he is devoted in everything he does. Verse 5 gives you the insight into where they're going to go. He is utterly predictable in one area of his life, and that he is faithful to his God. The convictions that he holds, the beliefs that he, that he, that, that he, that he claims to hold, he is devoted to them. He holds to them tightly and will not compromise to gain personal advantage. In that sense, Daniel is absolutely and beautifully free. The thought of getting something through compromise is part of Daniel's past and it was very seldom present. In, in the present situation, Daniel is steeled in this visible, palpable sense of conviction, of, of integrity, and of being unbuyable. So they begin to make a plot in relationship to his relationship with God. And one thing you have to remember as you read this account is that Daniel lives in a polytheistic culture. Okay, and when we say that, we, poly means many, theos means God. 
So it's a culture where there are many gods, many different paths that people were choosing, many directions that people wanted to move in their lives. Daniel was the guy that was on a straight track. He didn't flinch. He didn't budge. He didn't shift. He stayed true to his convictions no matter what it cost him. And in this case, they're going to put Daniel in a trap, in a situation where they seek to ultimately destroy him. Let's read this plot of treachery, verse 6. It says, so these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said. Now, I want you to listen to what they're going to say, because this is flattery at its best. The king should know that he's being set up, but this is also a king who is so very full of himself that he buys into the flattery. He actually enjoys it and finds it complimentary. So they go and they say, may the king live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have, and notice what it says next, have all agreed, which is what? A lie. You don't know that yet. Some of you know it. Watch what it says. We have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any God or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty. And you get to see him going like, yes. Anyone that prays to any human or God but you shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians. That is an unvoidable law. Because if the law came from the God, and the God himself is perfect and all-powerful, his mind can never change. Okay? And so that's the way that laws were established in the Medo-Persian Empire. So the plot of treachery. They appeal to the king's pride by a law that deifies the king or that acknowledges his deification. Verses 7 through 9, the trap is set and the penalty is determined to eliminate, not to sideline, Daniel. Okay, and that becomes very, very clear. They find no basis and no target, or I'm sorry, no basis, so they target his unshakable belief in and commitment to God. So here's the way it sets up. Anybody who prays to anybody but King Darius for the next 30 days, for them it's curtains. It's established by the law of the Medes and Persians, which means that it is an unvoidable law. Even the king cannot change this law. I want you to watch the response of Daniel. The first thing, I'm going to say this to you right away. In Daniel, there is no calculating. None whatsoever. Verse 10, it says this. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, and he would certainly know that it is an unvoidable fashion, he went home to his upstairs room with the windows open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. And notice what it says. Just as he had done before. Just let that settle in. I'm going to tell you, one thing that's hard about this text is we don't live in a totalitarian dictatorship. So at one level, it's hard for us to grasp how courageous this act is. 
probably many believers in God would just take their prayer into the closet. They would make it private. Whereas Daniel had established a pattern of faithfulness to God that is rooted in a larger promise from Scripture. This text tells us Daniel does what he has always done, always what he had always done, knowing that they would be watching, knowing that an unalterable decree had been signed, and knowing that the penalty had been set. His obedience to God, his continued pattern of faithfulness to God is unaltered. It is uncompromised. When Daniel goes in this case into prayer, this is not prayer as triage. It's not Daniel running into the emergency room saying, I broke something. It is his daily routine that he walked with and talked with and depended upon God. And when his life is on the line, he does the same thing. Now, I don't think that the primary thrust of this text is Daniel's prayer life, although it certainly is a clear emphasis in this text and one that we certainly should learn from. This is how Jesus taught us to pray, right? On a daily basis, our Father who art in heaven, right? He was teaching us to cultivate a habit of dependence on God by communicating with God. But what I want you to note initially here is that there is no delay in his obedience. He doesn't sit back for a day or two wrestling with himself over what he should do, agonizing with angst and stress. There's none. And, and, and the only reason for that, I think, from this text is Daniel is absolutely free from thoughts of trying to preserve his own life. It's in God's hands and has been all along. He's very clear about that. So he's experiencing a level of freedom through surrender that many of us never come to. Or we may taste it at times, but then we fall back. Right? I mean, I think that's pretty common for us. Daniel is at a level of commitment that is beautiful. His life. As I look at this, his life is fortified by his daily encounters with God so so that when the crisis came, he was prepared. He was unshaken. He just, he didn't have to stop and think about it. He just continued to walk the same direction he had been walking all his life. His daily habits informed his responses to daily struggles. So that habit that he cultivated, being before God and reminded of who God is, was informing his life decisions as he encountered threats, in this case, to his very life. One writer observing this in terms of the the kind of man, substantive man that Daniel is, he said this, Daniel does not flaunt his defiance, nor does he hide it. Think about that. He doesn't flaunt his, his, his defiance to God, nor does he hide it from others. He's a man of settled conviction. He knows that people will be watching. They brought up this issue because they know his habit. And knowing that they know his habit, Daniel still does what he always does. And that is that he goes before God and he prays. Now, here's the question. It tells us that he opens windows towards Jerusalem, right? And he goes there and he prays. And and if you're not familiar with Old Testament storyline, you may be wondering, why does he do that? And the answer is found in, in some of the experiences of Solomon, the king who built the temple. At the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, that temple was destroyed by what king? As we studied early on, what king destroyed the temple? King Nebuchadnezzar. 
okay? So Daniel knows the temple is ruined and the city is destroyed. And through Nebuchadnezzar and his arrogant son, Belshazzar, and through to Darius, what is he doing? He's facing to Jerusalem when he prays. And the question is, why? And I think the answer to that question comes in 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, it's built. It is the place where God will manifest himself to his people, where they will meet with him and find forgiveness for their sins. Solomon says, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray towards this place and give praise to your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven. And forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send land on the rain you gave your people for an inheritance. Meaning, bring back to life the homeland. What is Daniel doing when he gets on his knees and prays towards Jerusalem three times a day? I believe Daniel is praying to God like he believes that the people of Israel one day are going back. And if you read a little bit further in the book of Daniel, you're going to find that Daniel opens a scroll written by Jeremiah. That scroll says 70 years from the last day of departure from the land of Jerusalem, Israel is going back. God will raise up a king who will send Israel back to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Daniel prayed as if he believed that God was going to act in a beautiful and miraculous way in the life of his people. And so what motivated him? He asked the question, why does he pray like this so diligently and faithfully? Because he expected that the people of Israel would be delivered by God. He was saying, God, after 60 years in captivity, I believe your promise. Now verse 12 then follows. It says, then these men, these satraps who are watching Daniel pray faithfully to God. They went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they, they got him. Verse 12. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. And they said, King, did you not publish a decree that during the next 90, or 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the, the decree stands. In accordance with the law of the Medo-Persian and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king. So it's very interesting, this accusation. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. So he identifies him as one of the conquered, who is now moving up in leadership, is guilty of breaking your law. He still prays three times a day, and in parentheses you could write, as he always had done. When the king heard this, notice his response. He was greatly distressed, and he was determined to rescue Daniel, and made every effort until sundown to save him. Meaning, this king started to poke through every legal nuance to see if there was any way to thwart the law that he had written in an unavoidable fashion. So he goes into a frenzy to try to find. It's interesting the difference between Nebuchadnezzar's response to Daniel and his friends and Darius's response to, to Daniel. The Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, when they violated his law, he was furious and ordered their death. When Darius hears of Daniel's struggle with his law, 
He does everything he can to save his life. There's something that is attractive, magnetic, and beautiful about Daniel's life that this pagan king can see. And, and, and when these guys bring the accusation, the proof of Daniel's defiance is that he still prays. And now you understand why they said our line. If we're going to get him in a violation of the king's command, we need to get the king to write a law that is in conflict with what Daniel believes. Because Daniel is not for sale. Folks, I want to tell you something. We're living in an age when in, 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 in many, many areas, you are going to find yourself pressured to cave on things that are clear biblical principles. Okay? Matters of opinion, you can be flexible on. But there are certain biblical principles that when you hold to them, it is going to begin to create crises in your life as a believer. Okay? Now, I said to you already, Daniel didn't flaunt his defiance, but he did not hide his commitment to God. And I think that's a very important thing for us to understand. He does not go out and get a sign and protest. He just continues to do the right thing in spite of the cost. And in this case, the cost was his very life. It was everything. So the king is distressed. Verse 15 Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember your majesty that according to the law and the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that you, the king, issues can be changed. Now, you're going to notice something starts to pile up here. Okay, That is the ones that have accused Daniel are piling on. And this is going to flip back on top of them. Okay, because in their piling on, they're making it clear that the one that the king's lo- the king loves, they actually despise. Okay, so they keep ratcheting down on the king like they got him. But in that, they are sealing their own fate, which you'll see in a minute. Probably the most disturbing verse in this text. The king is distressed. Daniel's fate is sealed. The decree is irreversible. Verse 16 tells us what happens next. It says, so the king gave the order. He, he, he had to yield in this context to what was inevitable. He gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel as he's being thrown in, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Folks, listen. The pagan king is doing what Daniel had been doing three times a day because he knew the pattern of Daniel's life and the effect of Daniel's life was influencing the king of the world empire at that time. Think about that. Think about the level of impact that Daniel has in this larger circumstance because day by day, he had been practicing daily godly disciplines that were informing his heart, informing his response to this struggle. And he had captured the heart of, Nebuch- or of, of, of Darius. And Darius speaks words in this context that are amazing. Now, one of the things you need to know about the lions then, very simply, was this. These are not animals that were fed on a regular basis. They were there for a very pointed purpose. And that was to strike fear in the heart of anyone who would dare oppose the king. Uh, I, I just did a little research real quick. The average male full-grown lion is seven to eight feet long and weighs four to 500 pounds. 
the outcome of being thrown in the lion's den was not in question. What Daniel was facing was never in question. It wasn't like those, those two guys in Las Vegas. Someone and Roy. Siegfried and Roy. That was not Daniel. Okay, he didn't go in there and say, okay, calm down. This was certain termination. This was definitely fatal, without question. But somehow, Darius had learned enough about Daniel's God from only watching Daniel's life and perhaps interactions with him since he was in the inner circle of the cabinet of this king. That Daniel had said something to a pagan king that stopped him dead in his tracks and caused him to fear when Daniel's life was on the line. That to me is powerful. Hope comes from the lips of a pagan king whose only knowledge of the living God had come from Daniel who gained an audience by distinguishing himself through courageous living. Well, 17 to 18 tells us about a king in turmoil. It says a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet rings and the rings of the nobles so that the situation of Daniel might not be changed. Okay, and again, you find this unalterable aspect of things that leaks out of this text. The king returned to his palace, spent the night without eating and without entertainment, meaning this was to him so heavy and distressing that he gave up all of his kingly pleasures and functions. It was all wiped out by the distress that he was experiencing. And I am sure he is seething at the satraps and the administrators who had done this to Daniel. But he was caught. So he goes through a night of what we might call desperate insomnia. He wanted Daniel to survive. And he puts the onus on God. Interesting, isn't it? May God save you, Daniel. Here's what Darius is saying. It's out of my hands. There's nothing I can do. I have been swindled. I have been deceived. And it's your life. Verse 19, the crack of dawn. At first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? It's interesting. The king desperately wants Daniel to survive. He wants a God he doesn't know to be able to change Daniel's life because of what he had seen in Daniel's life. And notice what it says. And this is, this is so beautiful. Daniel says, my God sent his angel. He shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done wrong, any wrong before you, your majesty. Verse 24, or 23, the king was overjoyed. He gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him. And here's what it says, and this is the key to the text, because he trusted in his God. 
That's the part that has to settle in. Why did Daniel end up in the lion's den? Because he trusted God. Why did he come out of the lion's den? Because he trusted God. Here's the thing that amazes me. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, and I just printed this out real quick this morning, and you get into this hall of fame of heroes. Daniel in this text is unnamed but not unpresent. Listen to what it says. The writer of Hebrews, and what more shall I say? So he's gone through a list of people like David and Abraham and just notable characters and their faith and how God has worked through their lives in powerful ways. He says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also, Samuel, and of the prophets, which brings me into the realm of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the ten prophets, right? I'm in that realm now. Here's what he says. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises. And listen to what it says next. Stopped the mouth of lions. It's an interesting statement. The prophet Daniel is attributed with stopping the mouth or binding the mouth of the lion. But I know from the text that I'm in that God's angel had shut the lion's mouth. So how can Daniel be credited with shutting the mouths of lions? That becomes an interesting question, right? And I think the simple answer is this. It was by faith he believed God. And God acted as an instrument on his behalf to glorify his name in the saving of Daniel. So think about this. When I face an impossible circumstance, as James said to us a little bit ago, and I, by faith, respond in the will of God, when God acts, we are working in a beautiful way that I don't understand. There is mystery in this. But there is a way in which we are working together towards God's purposes. That should blow your mind. And it should thrill your heart. That when I walk in obedience to God in difficult circumstances, not with protest signs, but with public defiance, if I am asked to do something that is contrary to something that God has clearly stated, I must publicly take my stand, not find a secret place to obey God, but publicly do the right thing. As our pastor always said to us growing up, leave the results with God. It simplifies your life. If you enter into negotiations with God or others over every circumstance that comes up that tests your steel, you're going to live a very conflicted, divided life. Your heart will always be wrenched between the temporal and the eternal. As I read this text, I see a man who is completely... He has completely severed himself from attachments to the temporal realm. He has done what Jesus taught his disciples. If you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. Then you can take up the cross and follow me. Folks, if I'm more concerned about my well-being and my comfortable life, I will not be able to stand the way that God wants me to stand. Because I'll always be calculating. I'll always be trying to figure out what gives me some benefit. Maybe not all, because I don't want to be that worldly but I'm going to try to figure out how I can get through this circumstance, save face, publicly have a reputation that I'm faithful to God, and everything will be okay. That road is one that is so conflicted and will bring you so much anxiety and such a deep lack of clarity in your life. 
Daniel knew the right thing. And what did he do? He did the right thing. He did what he always did. He just went and prayed, knowing they'd be watching, knowing that he would end up in the lion's den, knowing that God was able to deliver him. Because this text is going to tell you as you move to the end what was motivating Daniel. Now, verse 24 tells us what it was like in the ancient world. In a pagan kingdom, like the Medo-Persian Empire, at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel. Now, here, here's, here's what's clear. These men hated Daniel. And what did Jesus say? He said, if you hate someone, it's like you've murdered them. It's the danger of hate. These people had cultivated deep resentment against Daniel. And when they had their chance, that hatred they had been cultivating morphed into a desire to kill and murder. And the king knew it. And the king knew that all of them suddenly knew that all of them had their interest in mind, not his. So when they came and said, oh, king, live forever, it was all flattery. It was all lies. And when they signed it in the law of the Medo-Persian Empire, unvoidable, they were trapping him in it. And twice they would say to him, you signed it in the law of the Medo-Persian Empire, and you can't change it. We got you. Serve us. You know how a pagan king responds to that? He throws you in the lion's den. This text is brutal. It says that the king's command, the men who falsely accused Daniel, were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and their children. Before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. That is horrifying. That is troubling. And it's what happened in the ancient world. Defy the king, your life, and your family. Why? So that none of your heirs will live to assassinate me. For what they did to your family. That was the way it was in the ancient world. Thank God I don't live then. Verse 25. Then Darius wrote to all nations and peoples of every language and all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. See, Nebuchadnezzar knows that you don't survive the lion's den. That's not a survivable experience. But Daniel did, and the question is why? The king says he rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. He rescued Daniel from what you can't be rescued from. And, and Darius is basically saying, that gets my attention. Uh, that gets my attention. Verse 28 is beautiful. It says, so Daniel prospered. Think of that. On the day that they wished his demise, his utter devastation and death, his total elimination, he prospered. So be careful in your circumstance. I think we preached on this about a year ago. Be careful in your circumstance that you don't say that's bad when it may actually be good. Right? The outcome for Daniel is not that he survived. It's that he prospered. He thrived in his obedience before God in a way that is beautiful and admirable. So what are the applications? This very quickly. Daniel's reputation was formed by his daily life and decisions. 
The circumstance did not change Daniel, this circumstance. But it did expose him. In other words, Daniel didn't, through this, become a better man. Daniel went into this situation the man that he was. And before the circumstance could ever change him, it must first expose him. And see, folks, that's what happens to us on a regular basis. We face circumstances and we're praying for God to change us because we haven't been doing the daily things that God calls us to do to be the men and women and young people that he wants us to be. So when we face daily struggles, we fail because we're not practicing a daily walk with God. Daniel did it the opposite way. He got his life with God right. And then he was ready to face the circumstances no matter what came. And I think it's a valuable lesson for us to realize that Daniel's life is not shaped by large consequential days. That's what we're reading about, right? Daniel 6 is a big event. It's a big day. It's a big stand on Daniel's part. But the man that stands on that day is a man who has walked with God faithfully. And when he reads the edict, his heart of faithfulness to God is exposed because he does what he's always done in spite of the consequences. You know, every day we make choices. And those little choices that we make determine the outcome of our lives and they determine our response to large, overwhelming circumstances. The way I prepare for a cancer diagnosis the way I prepare for a loss of job, the way I prepare or should prepare for a downturn in the market should be in my daily life. Like I shouldn't wait for the crisis to come and show me who I am, hoping it will change me. I should be seeking for God to change me so that when the inevitable struggle or crisis falls into my life, I am ready for it because I've been practicing daily disciplines that prepare me for daily struggles. That's Daniel's life. And it is beautiful to see. Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, as a leader in the church, watch your life and what you believe. Keep an eye on it. Daily cultivate it. Daily live truth. So that when the walls of life come crashing in, you can stand for God's glory. second lesson, I think, comes from how most of us tend to respond to this text. Most of us study the story of Daniel and come away singing the song that I learned as a kid, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. And the, 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 the hero of the story, as I was taught as a kid, was always Daniel. Daniel is not the hero of the story. The hero of the story is the one that just the mouth of lions. It's amazing that the instrument that he uses is Daniel thrown in for that to occur. So the hero of the story, as, as, as King Darius says, is he trusted his God and God delivered him. He exclaims that. He knows what just happened. Has your God saved you? Has he been able? Yes, King. God saved him because he trusted him. Therefore, all the nations of the world should know about a God like that. Okay? Here's the connection. I hope, as I read through this text, a couple bells rang for you. These are the parallels 
Daniel's despised because of his innocence and falsely accused by those who wished him dead. Does that ring a bell for you? Jesus was betrayed by Judas and by a lying mob because they wanted him dead. A political leader defends the innocence of Daniel. And a king named Pilate, a governor named Pilate, defends the innocence of Christ. Daniel trusted in God. Jesus said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Daniel was cast into a sealed pit with a stone over its mouth. Jesus was sealed in a tomb. Daniel's life is protected by the power of God. And Jesus' life is taken for my sin. So whenever you're reading the Old Testament story, you are never far from the gospel story. Daniel is a type of Christ. The difference is that Jesus came to die. And it, he knew it would cost him everything. So he, he got on his face and what did he do? In the garden, how many times? He went and prayed three times. Father, if it's possible, let this pass. I can imagine Daniel saying to God, Father, I, I don't want to die. But I want you to be glorified and I want your will to be done. Those decisions, folks, that deeply affect the lives of others like Daniel's does and even more like Christ does, those decisions flow out of a life that has been schooled in obedience to God. It's fascinating to me that as you look at this, the work of Christ, his going into the grave, having died for our sins, is saving. It's life-changing. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, I hope that you can look at Daniel's story and say, I'd love to be like him, but I don't, I don't find that inside of me. I don't find that kind of character, that kind of godliness. Well, it's not naturally emerging from my sinful soul. I need God's forgiveness. I need regeneration. I need my heart to be transformed by the power of God like Daniel's was so that when I face that circumstance, I don't have to negotiate. I don't have to think about it. I just do the right thing just like Christ did, however perfectly. You see, my obedience will never be perfect. My death will never save someone, but the death of Jesus does. And I hope that as you look at the life of Christ, you will see in Jesus the character of Daniel that steals him. He trusts in God, goes to Calvary's cross, gives up his life to bear the consequence of Tim Hoff's rebellion so that I can be forgiven and set free from it through his death and ultimately through his resurrection from the grave. Daniel's story would give hope of deliverance to the exiles in the Medo-Persian Empire who would one day go back to Israel. Just as the story of Jesus being raised from the dead gives hope to everyone who places trust in his shed blood. So the prayer simply this morning is this, God, let me be like Daniel 
because I am trusting you and walking with you in my daily life. Maybe this morning as you listen to this account, you're thinking to yourself, you know what, my daily life is not, it's not what it ought to be. I have good news for you. There's a Savior that when you run to him, when you flee to him, he'll never turn you away. He'll forgive you, he'll cleanse you, he'll bring you into his family, and he'll bring you into a relationship with him where you can enjoy his presence where you can have his Holy Spirit indwelling you and changing you and affecting you so that when the big event comes, you can stand because on a daily basis, you've just been simply saying yes to God. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? Our Father, we thank you for your word, for this incredibly powerful account, for this testimony of a man's life lived for your glory. Lord, may we dare to be a Daniel. May we have a purpose strong. And may we boldly make it known, your truth. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who has never trusted in Christ, my prayer very simply, Father, would be that you would open their heart this morning to see that through the death of Jesus, through his shed blood that we will celebrate in this communion table, there is hope. There's hope for forgiveness. There's hope for a changed life. There's hope to stand on the big day because we have been daily fortified by and walking with Christ. Lord, help us as your church to cultivate those habits that make the communion table precious to us. And Lord, as we partake of it this morning, I pray that we will do it out of hearts that are challenged, that are examined, that are cleansed. And then we will eat that bread and drink that cup to the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Listen, we're going to share the Lord's table together. If you're visiting with us and you're not used to uh, observing the Lord's table, perhaps you have not come into a personal relationship with Christ. Do not think that taking these elements in any way changes your relationship with God. Uh, What we are doing this morning is simply proclaiming our simple trust and faith in Christ. If you've trusted Christ, you know him, you've been forgiven, you're striving to walk with him and for him. The Bible is very clear. Eat that bread and drink that cup. As the elements are passed out, there'll be a little bit of time for you just to contemplate quietly in your heart before God to do what Paul encourages us to do, and that is to examine yourself. If you don't know Christ, to cry out to God and say, God, change my heart. I've been, I've been coming. I've been hearing the truth of the gospel, and I have not crossed that line yet to trust in Christ. Today, I want to trust him. If that happens to you today, I'm going to encourage you. Come up and tell us. Come up and tell us, say, today, I, God worked in my heart. I am trusting in the shed blood of Christ alone for my forgiveness and hope. If you know Christ and you're guarding your heart, then the text is clear. Eat that bread, drink that cup, and when we do it, we are celebrating the Lord's death together until he comes. The ladies are going to play a song as the elements are distributed this morning.
You could take the elements, uh, the bread first. Paul says this, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup also, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, bless as we sing our closing song. May it cement in our hearts the truth that we have looked at this morning. And I pray that by your grace, we will be changed into people that truly trust the living God. We pray in Christ's name, amen. My worth is not in what I own. Not in the strength of flesh and bone But in the costly wounds of love At the cross My worth is not in skill or name In win or lose But in the blood of Christ that flows at the cross. And I rejoice. And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in Him no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. As summer flowers, as summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. But life eternal calls to us. At the cross, I will not boast. I will not boast in wealth or might, or human's wisdom's fleeting life. But I will boast in knowing Christ at the in my Redeemer, the greatest treasure, the wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in Him no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. And I 
rejoice in my Redeemer, the greatest treasure, a wellspring of my soul. And I will trust in Him no other. My soul is satisfied. Two wonders. The two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. And I rejoice. And I rejoice in my trust in him no other my soul is satisfied in him alone my soul is satisfied in him alone yes lord we proclaim that this morning that our souls are satisfied in you lord and just as daniel lord brought nothing and would only trust in you and walked with you into danger and walked with you out of danger Lord, we bring nothing. We only have what you have given us. God, as we go into our weeks, Lord, maybe look to Daniel as an example, but ultimately up to you as our guide, as our provider, and as the one who can walk with us and who leads us out. God, thank you for this time. We ask that you be with us now as we go from here, and we give you all the praise and the glory and the honor. Amen. Have a nice week.